0: amen let's start tonight in john chapter 14 folks i know i sound like a broken record on this but the gospel of john here over the last several years has just absolutely come alive to me and um, um, i think part of it well i know that part of it is the historical conditions or situations upon uh, under which it was written we know that, uh, that Jesus was crucified in about 33, 32, 33 A.D. And uh, we also know that the Gospel of John was written in about 95 A.D. So you've got 60, what is that, 62, 63 years after the church was born, after the resurrection of Jesus and the church was born. And John comes back with an eyewitness testimony that... Um, that for me just opens up a lot of things that I didn't see before. It's interesting to me, it's instructive, I believe, that John didn't have to set the record straight about anything. He didn't have to come back and say, now Matthew said one thing and and Luke said another, because his was the last of the four gospels that was written, of course. So he doesn't have to correct the record. See, when something is inspired and and, uh, controlled by the Holy Ghost, there's no mistakes there's, no, there's nothing to fix. And the, the biggest part, or one of the big parts, or maybe not the biggest, but one of the big parts of the uniqueness of the Gospel of John is what we have recorded, again, by his eyewitness testimony of the things that happened and the things that were said at the Last Supper, the, the last night Jesus was with his disciples. So in John chapter 14... Most of, what he, most of what information he does give us that separates his gospel from the others and gives it a unique perspective is what Jesus said about the Holy Ghost. So in verse 16, John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus, here at the Last Supper with his disciples, said, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the Holy Ghost in you tonight. Now, the word uh, that's uh, translated comforter there in verse 16 is the Greek word paraclete. And it has seven different meanings. Not Comforter is one of them. But it has seven different meanings. The Amplified lists them all. Uh, let, me try, let me see if I can remember what they are. Advocate. Counselor. Comforter, Helper, Intercessor, Strengthener, and Standby. Is that seven? I think I got them all. Well, it instructs us because the Holy Ghost is given as a result of Jesus' prayer. Notice he said, I'll pray the Father and he will send you another Comforter. Jesus' prayer was effective to send the Comforter to us. And with all those things, those seven different characteristics or seven different names that we could give to the Holy Ghost, it uh, it instructs us, it reveals to us that these are things that God wants us to have. He wants us to be comforted. He wants us to have counsel. He wants us to have an advocate, which is a, a legal representative. He wants us to know that the Holy Ghost is on our side when the devil brings condemnation. The Holy Ghost is on our side as an advocate. He's our intercessor in in that situation, in that uh, specific thing that that, uh, John told us by the Holy Ghost about the Spirit of God and the work of the Spirit of God. He's not talking about the Holy Ghost praise for us. He's talking about the Holy Ghost has bridged the gap through the work of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus and his resurrection. He's bridged the gap to join us and unite us with God the Father in such a way that we can never be separated again. Well, if he's our strengthener, God wants us to have strength. If he's our standby, that means God wants us to have anything we have need of because the Holy Ghost is there to bring it to us and to help us. Now I want to back up a little bit in John chapter 14. Let's start in verse 10 and see the context in which Jesus says these things. John 14, 10, Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Now, let me point out what I'm sure you already know, but let me remind you of something. In the original translation, the Greek text doesn't have, it certainly wasn't divided in chapter and verse. The translators did that to help us, and it has no punctuation. And so the translators punctuated these scriptures. In the way that they thought was most accurate. And by and large, they did a pretty good job, but not in every case. Notice here it says in verse 10, Jesus is responding to what Thomas, or what Philip said, I believe. And notice he said, The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. It'd be good if we put a period right there, because he's gonna tell us two things about the Father as he works by the Holy Ghost. He said the father in me he giveth he speaks the words or he gives me the words to speak. And then the second point that he makes is he the father who gives me the words to speak he's the one that does the works. Now folks, you remember when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River. The Bible says there was a voice from heaven as he came up out of the water, John initially resisted baptizing him, you may recall. He said, this ought to be the other way around. You ought to be baptizing me. And Jesus said, no, we've got to fulfill the prophecy. This is the way it's supposed to be. So when Jesus is baptized into the water and comes out of the water, there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son in whom, in whom I'm well pleased. And everybody that was there bear record or bore witness to the fact that the Holy Ghost came down from heaven as a bird would fly from the sky and land on something the Holy Ghost landed on Jesus and remained apparently there was something that everybody could see that came and landed upon Jesus and absorbed into him it's not like Jesus went around ministering everywhere from that point on with a bird on his shoulder but it remained on Jesus everybody could see that it came to land on Jesus and remained there so you've got all three persons of the Trinity involved in, a, in one single event You've got Jesus, the Son of God, who was made flesh and lived here on the earth. You've got God the Father speaking from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then you've got the Holy Ghost who manifested himself in such a way that everybody could see what was going on. Now, how did the Father dwell in Jesus? Jesus talked a lot about being one with the Father. He talked a lot about the Father in me. That's what he said in verse 10 here. It's the Father in me that gives me the words to speak and that does the works. How could God be in Jesus and be separate from him? Well, there's only one possibility, and that's by the Holy Ghost. In just the same way that Jesus lives in us. See, Jesus doesn't have a, 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 well, Jesus has, according to his own testimony after his resurrection, he has a flesh and bone body, not flesh and blood. His blood was spilled and taken and presented in the heavenly holy of holies, according to Hebrews chapter 9 as an eternal redemption for us. So if Jesus has a finite body, flesh and bone would be finite, wouldn't it? So if Jesus has a finite body, how does he live in us? How does he indwell us? How does he live in our hearts, as we sometimes say? Well, the answer is by the Holy Ghost. So you've got Jesus, who has commissioned the Holy Ghost. Right here we read in verse 16 and 17, the Holy Ghost who dwells in you and, be, and shall be with you. We've got the power of God. We've got the presence of God. We've got the fulfillment of the relationship with God. All taking place by the Holy Ghost who, dwells, who indwells us. Let's keep reading a little bit. Verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Or else believe me for the very works sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now the words ask in verses 13 and 14 doesn't mean what most people think the word ask should mean. It doesn't mean that we're pleading or requesting from God anything whatsoever it means to call for or require it means to place a demand on something see folks our salvation is based on legal rights that's why Jesus couldn't cut any corners when he went to the cross that's why God couldn't just say well okay he's he suffered long enough that's it there was a legal requirement that had to be fulfilled In order for righteousness and redemption to be real, the devil is the accuser of the brethren. Can you imagine what the devil would have done for all eternity if God had cut some corners to bring man back in fellowship with himself? But spiritual death is a real thing. Spiritual death held mankind in check and in bondage. And there had to be a legitimate payment or ransom price paid for us to enter into that righteousness. Righteousness is not cheap. And there's nothing about man's righteousness that will ever be cheap. Now the reason that I say that is because the devil would make you think that any slight mistake or misstep on your part or on mine, that blows the whole deal. Sure, Jesus brought you righteousness but you know how unworthy you are and you know what a sinner you are and you know how many things, terrible things that you've done that disqualifies you. Folks, the blood of Jesus is, is big enough and pure enough and holy enough and worthy enough to overcome your mistakes and mine. It's an everlasting redemption. It's an everlasting Righteousness. And everything about the Bible tells us over and over again through statements that seem perhaps too hard for us to accept. For example, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. That seems almost like a fairy tale. How could that possibly be true? You know the things that you've done, and I know the things that I've done that should qualify us for condemnation. But it's not dependent on us anymore. It's not dependent on our works or our actions. Our righteousness is of God. Now, if the Holy Ghost is the Comforter, and again, those seven different names identify the work that He'll do for us and in us, and sometimes through us. Most translations, most English translations, use the word helper rather than comforter. Well, what is the Holy Ghost going to help us to do? There are several things in John chapter 14, 15, and 16. That Jesus said about what the Holy Ghost would do one of the fascinating things to me about John's gospel as I said before and the the thing that separates it from the other gospels is that it's the Holy Ghost bearing witness and bringing to John's remembrance all the things that happened he's had 60 years 60 plus years of being in the family of God, of walking in righteousness. He's, he's an old man at this point. He's getting close to being 100 years old when he writes the book, the gospel that bears his name. He's had a chance to live out all these things. And I'm sure through the years, the more he fellowshiped with God, and remember John had a very unique experience. There were several occasions when the Romans, the Roman leaders, tried to kill this guy. It's very well documented in early church history documents and and evidences that one of the Roman emperors tried to boil him in oil and he wouldn't die. It had no effect on him at all. It didn't affect his, his flesh or his skin in any way whatsoever. He didn't even get blisters from it. Well, at that point, the Roman emperor is coming to the realization that there's not much you can do with this guy. So that's when he banished him to the Isle of Patmos. And what happened then? He was only there for about nine months before the the emperor that banished him was, uh, uh, his life expired. So on the Isle of Patmos, Jesus shows him a revelation of the end of the age. And the the dates of the uh, letter that he wrote, the revelation and the gospel of John, are very close. As a matter of fact, we don't know which one was written first. It's almost like he went straight from one to the other. Now, I don't know if that would be true in a literal sense or not, but they were very closely associated. So, where Jesus told John, well, told all the apostles, that the Holy Ghost would bring things to their remembrance whatsoever he had said, that's what's taking place when John gives us his account. He's brought to John's remembrance things that Jesus said about after he goes after he returns to the father now if the helper is sent by god and remember again one of the things jesus said that john tells us about is that it was expedient or beneficial for them that he goes away when he said he's going to the father that brought them into a sadness and a grief that hindered just about every part of their existence for a couple of days They fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane for sorrow. They were so saddened and grieved by the fact Jesus said he was leaving them. He said, yet a little while you see me and then you won't see me again. And they were trying to to stop him from going. They were questioning him. Where are you going? Why do you have to go? Jesus said in uh, part of John's revelation about these uh, last night events, last supper events, When he said plainly that he was going to the father, Peter said, why are you going to the father? Jesus said, I'm going to the father and you can't go after me. But when I return unto you, then you can follow me. And Peter, who's used to doing anything and everything that Jesus does, you remember when Jesus walked on the water in the middle of the night to get to the ship, Peter's the one that said, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come on. Peter was used to doing everything that Jesus did. There was nothing about Jesus' life or ministry here on the earth, in Peter's experience, that Jesus ever said that only he could do until we come to the time when he's talking about going to the cross. And so Peter says, why can't I go? They're greatly saddened by the fact that Jesus was leaving them. But then Jesus turned around and said, you should be glad I'm going to the Father. Because if I wasn't going to the Father, I couldn't send the Holy Ghost. This spirit of truth couldn't come unto you. And it's better for you. Think about this. It's better for you that I go away. It seems to me that a lot of people in the church world have the idea that if they could just have lived when Jesus was here on the earth, that would have been the greatest of all experiences. Jesus said what you've got is better than that. the Holy Ghost who is given, the spirit of truth, the helper. It's greater for us, it's better for us that he be sent. Now back to the question I asked a moment ago. If he's the helper, how is he going to help us? I want you to turn back with me to to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, here's God's summary of the creation of the earth. Notice in verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now back up to chapter 1 and verse 26, and let's compare these two things. Genesis 1, 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and, upon, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. How did he do that? Well, chapter, seven verse, or chapter 2, verse 7 tells us. He formed man in, uh, out of the dust of the ground. He made his form, his physical body. But it was only when he breathed into him that he became alive. Now, John's the one that tells us in John chapter 20 about when Jesus was raised from the dead and first appeared to the disciples. You remember the story? It says they were behind closed and locked doors for fear of the Jews. And Jesus comes in the midst of them and breathes on them and said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now, compare this that we see in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 with what John tells us about the disciples being born again. At the creation, God breathed into him his very essence, his very spirit. Well, the essence of God is the Holy Spirit, isn't he? The spirit of God would be God's spirit. And so at the beginning, in the creation account, it was the Holy Ghost that was on the inside of Adam and Eve. For what purpose? Well, Genesis one twenty six is real clear about saying the, the reason why God created man. Let us make man in our own in, image and after our own likeness. That means an exact duplicate in kind. And let them have dominion. God created man to have authority. Well, then if the Holy Ghost is going to help us, how's he going to help us? One of the main ways he's going to help us is the in, in or through the exercise of our authority. Now let's go back to John chapter 15 and see some other things that Jesus talked about at this last supper, the last time that he was with the disciples before his resurrection. John 15 verse 4. Notice it says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. The word abide means to continue or to stay. It refers to a place or a position. Now, folks, the fact that Jesus is telling them to abide in him means that they didn't have to. He's encouraging them to stay close. Now, the abiding in him he's talking about there certainly has reference to the salvation experience that they have not yet entered into. Jesus knows what the Holy Ghost is going to do. That's why in John chapter 20, when they're behind closed doors for fear of the Jews, that's why he breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Jesus is breathing his own life into the disciples, and that life is the Holy Spirit. So just as the Holy Spirit was the presence of God, it was the sign of unity with God, being one with his Father, which every time he said that, remember the, the Jews tried to kill him for it. That was one of the greatest problems they have with Jesus' ministry is that Jesus kept saying over and over again, I'm not the one doing the works. Now, the works are being done through him, but the power that enables the works to be done was the presence of the Holy Ghost himself. That's why Jesus didn't do any miracles before he was 30 years old and entered into his ministry. See, Jesus was just as much the son of God at age 29 as he was at age 30. And if Jesus was doing miracles here on the earth because he was the Son of God, why did he wait till he was baptized in the Jordan River by John? Why was that the beginning point of his ministry? Well, by his own admission, he said, The, the, Spirit, the, the Holy Ghost, or the Father in me, is the one doing the works. How is the Father in him? How is the Father joined with him? By the Holy Ghost himself. So when Jesus tells the disciples that the Spirit of truth is coming, He said, the world can't receive the spirit of truth, but you know him for he dwells with you and shall be in you. He's saying we will know God is our father. We will know that we're children of God. We will know that we're part of God's family. We will know the power and the, the potential that's in us because the Holy Ghost is there and we know him. Unfortunately, I think there's too many of us that don't really know him. But that's not the way he wants it to be. So he says, abide in me. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except you abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without or apart from me you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, verse 7, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and so shall you be my disciples. Notice in verse 8, or I'm sorry, verse 7, where it says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you you shall ask what you will this word ask is the same word that we looked at before it means to place a demand or to call for or to require now he said there was there were conditions on that there were conditions on the success we can call uh, the success we have when we call for or require something in the name of Jesus those conditions are abiding in him it's talking about a relationship with your heavenly father He's talking about fellowship with him. And then he says, if if my words abide in you. So how are we going to abide in him? Folks, the only way to fellowship with God is through his word. The only way to know who God is is through his word. The only way to come to the understanding or revelation of what all God has done for us and in us is through the word. Jesus said, talking to his disciples, He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. How are they going to learn of Jesus? There's only one way we can learn of Jesus, and that's through the word. It's through fellowshipping with God through his word that we come to the realization of what his will is. Remember the Bible says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Jesus quoted that from the Old Testament in his time here on the earth. So that means if we can find two or three places in the Scripture that identifies something about God's will for us here on this earth, we can know of a certainty that that's the will of God, that that's the character, and that's the nature of God. I think for many of us, the more we see something, like for example, people that argue about whether or not healing is for us today, And a certain segment of the church world, you know as well as I do, says, well, God's all-powerful, nothing's impossible to him, so he can heal without any doubt or any question. But he doesn't heal everybody, they say. But if we want to know what God's will is concerning healing, we're going to have to find out by the word. There's a lot of people that have a lot of different opinions about things out there, not just on the subject of healing, but in every subject. Well, how are we going to know what's right? What's right? By finding the infallible word of God that reveals to us the character and the nature and the will of our Father. Now folks there are many, many times, many places where the subject of healing is dealt with in one way or another. To say in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word is, shall be established related to the subject of healing. There's a lot more than three. As a matter of fact I, just about, I see healing on just about every page of the, of the Bible. It's easy for me to see that. And I don't know. I've never really counted up all the different ways and places that the scripture refers to the healing power of God or the will of God to heal everybody. But let's just say there's 15 times, 15 places. There's at least that, probably many more. But let's say there are 15 places where we can identify this, the will of God to heal his children. Does that make it more the will of God than something we just see three times? See, we would like to see a bunch. we like to see as many places as we can to identify what the will of God is. But look at it from God's standpoint. If we see something that is his will, if it's established by two or three different scriptures, isn't it just as much an act of faith to take those two or three? And say this is who my father is. As to require or hope for 15 or 20 times. See folks the Bible saying something more times than two or three. Doesn't make it more true. That may suit us a little better. But everything the Bible tells us. And all the characteristics that God reveals of himself. Through two or three different passages of scripture. Those are just as real as if something was there a hundred times. So with that in mind, what does the Holy Ghost do? How is he going to help us? One of the greatest ways he's going to help us is in the exercise of our authority here on the earth. Notice again verses 7 and 8. John 15, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. He's talking about fellowship. He's talking about knowledge of the word. He's saying if our relationship with God is His own track if we're walking with him in fellowship if we're walking in love remember jesus said again it's in those passages of scripture where jesus was with the disciples at the last supper that john tells us about a new commandment i give unto you that you love one another he said if you love me you'll keep my commandments well the commandment is very simply to walk in love that's the only law we have of the new covenant Now, some people get upset about that and say, yeah, but what about the Ten Commandments? Folks, if you're walking in love, you're not going to break any of the Ten Commandments. As Jesus said, therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So if we're walking in love, if we're building our house, our lives on the solid rock of God's word, then we're going to be walking in love with others around us. And the Bible very clearly and simply says that that's what it takes to abide in him. So if we're abiding or staying or continuing on in him and his word is in us, we shall call for or require or place a demand on that relationship we have with God in the exercise of our authority. Notice in verse 8 again, it says, herein, in this manner is our Father glorified. God delights in you exercising your authority on the earth. He delights in you and me exercising our authority on the earth to overcome the work of the devil in any and every area of our lives. God didn't leave us here on the earth to be defeated by the enemy. He left us here on the earth to exercise authority over the enemy, to walk free from his works, to walk free from the bondage of sin and death. to manifest the victory of Jesus being raised from the dead. So he said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Make a demand on anything that you need to that lines up with what the word of God says and the character of God that's revealed to us by the word. We started off in John chapter 14. He said, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and even greater works than these shall he do, because I go into my Father. God's not put off by us doing the same works that he did through Jesus. God's not put off by us wanting to do the same works that Jesus did. Herein is my Father glorified. Jesus said the one, one way, at least, and it is a primary way that we can bring glory to God is by placing a demand on the relationship we have with God and the power of his word to do the will of the Father here on the earth. God never changes. If it was ever his will for man to have authority on the earth, then it's always his will for man to have authority on the earth. And nothing can be clearer than Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 that tells us the very reason God made man and put him here on the earth, the very reason that he breathed into his body his own life or the spirit of God was so that we could exercise authority and have dominion over all the works of his hands. That will always be God's will, folks. So if Jesus is sending us the helper that makes us new creatures in him, that recreates our spirits, this comforter, this strengthener, this standby. How's he going to strengthen us? He's going to strengthen us through the word of God to exercise our dominion here on this earth. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Let me put this in a little bit of context without going through a whole lot of scripture. In chapter 7, Paul writes to the Romans about his struggle. The struggle between his spirit and his flesh. Now a lot of people would like to think that Paul didn't have flesh. That everything that he did was so perfect and so right on. So on track with the things of God that he never sinned himself. But that's not his testimony. His testimony written to a church. And remember Paul had never been to Rome at that point in time that he wrote this letter He said that he tried to get there several times, but the devil hindered him. Now, one of the benefits for us that come as a result of Paul not having started the church at Rome is that he wrote down his doctrine. He wrote down the things that he would have preached to the Romans had he been with them. But every other letter that Paul wrote, he had been to these places, he had been to these cities, he had established these churches. And so we don't have a record of the things that he preached to them when he was there. For example, the Thessalonian church, he was in Thessalonica for about four months. And through the things that he writes back to the church at Thessalonica, we see that they had a great understanding of the end time events. He writes as much or more to the Thessalonians than he does to any other church. Well, if he was only there for four months and he taught them a lot of things and and many of the things he wrote back to them, he said, you remember that when I was there, I told you these things. Then we must assume that some teaching of the end time events was a part of Paul's pattern when he was starting a church. But the Romans, the churches at Rome were places that he had never been. He had never taught taught them. They they were not part of his regular pattern because since he hadn't arrived there yet. And so he gives us a record, a written record of the things that he wants them to know. And the doctrine is so precise, is so systematic, is so clear in the letter that he wrote to the Romans that it gives us some understanding of what he would have taught there had he been there in person. But if that had been the case, then we wouldn't have a record of it. So Paul talks about things that had happened earlier in his, in his life as he was beginning to walk with God after he came into the family of God. He writes about the dilemma that he's in, the conflict that he has. He said he always wanted to do the right thing, but his body kept leading him into the wrong thing. Anybody here had that experience? We all have. Paul wasn't special because God had a special purpose for him. He had to live the same kind of life that we do. He had the same kind of flesh to deal with that we do. And so he comes to the place where he realizes the difference between his spirit and his body. He said, this is one thing that I've figured out, come to understand. My spirit, the recreated, born-again spirit that's within me, that is the real me. He always wants to do the right thing. But there's another power, another force that's at work in my earthly life too. And that's the flesh that hasn't been redeemed yet. That flesh that hasn't experienced with sin still wants to sin. Now folks, the foremost, prophet, foremost apostle on the face of the earth is saying, my body wants to do wrong just like yours does. Well, the things that he understood and the things that he came to realize And the things that he taught us enabled God to keep using him, didn't it? Paul wasn't disqualified from being used of God because his flesh wanted to do the wrong thing. And neither are you or I disqualified either, no matter what our body wants to do. So Paul comes to the understanding, he said, from my heart, the real me always wants to do the right thing. But this man on the outside, this flesh that had the experience of sin in it, still wants to do wrong. And he says, who's going to deliver me from this? And the answer that he concludes chapter 7 with is, I thank my God through Jesus Christ my Lord. Now that brings us to chapter 8. Chapter 8 starts off because Jesus is the deliverer, not just delivers us from sin, not just delivers us from spiritual death, but delivers us from the conflict between our spirit and our soul, or between our spirit and our bodies. He says, there is therefore, since Jesus is the deliverer, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Notice the King James says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Folks, this is one thing that the translators seem to, it must have been just too far out for them because they took a phrase that's in verse four and put it in verse one. The original text does not say who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. It's just not there. And the only explanation that I can, can imagine as to why the translators would rearrange a verse of Scripture was because the idea of no condemnation must have just floored them. They must have concluded this can't be right. See, if the Bible is true the way it was written, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, then the absence of condemnation has nothing to do with your behavior or mine. But if the way they changed it is true, if that was God's original intent, then that means no condemnation depends on whether or not you do the right thing or the wrong thing. Now, we know the Bible says that the righteousness of God is not according to our own works. We can't work ourselves into righteousness. Righteousness is something that is of God. Our righteousness is of him personally. And that was the whole reason for Jesus having to pay the price for the three days and nights that he was in the heart of the earth. He had to pay a price. And as we said, it was a legal matter. He had to legally release mankind from the bondage of sin and death by paying a ransom for us. And that ransom was his precious blood. So we know that righteousness is not dependent on our own action, even though the devil wants us to think that it is. But here's the question, how could we be righteous by the blood of Jesus and still be under condemnation from God's end? It's impossible. The translators, however, couldn't accept that. But chapter 8, verse 1 of Romans reads this way in the original Greek text. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Period. Here's the reason why, verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. It's already done. You've been made free from the law of sin and death. Now, if you've been made free from the law of sin and death, this scripture is true. If Paul is writing by the Holy Ghost, and this is absolute truth, thank God he is, and it is. But if it's true, then that means it's impossible For the condemnation that accompanies the law of sin and death to hold you and me in bondage. Now it does hold a lot of people in bondage. It does hold a lot of believers in bondage. How come? The power has been broken. Well the reason is there's not many of us that have come to the understanding. That Jesus delivered us from condemnation when he delivered us from the law of sin and death. And the spirit of life. In Christ Jesus is so much greater than the law of sin and death that there's no room for condemnation whatsoever so there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death let me interrupt this for just a second and ask you a question is Romans the book of Romans inspired by God is it truth Well, if it's true, and it is, since it's true, we'll say it that way. Since it's true, we can well understand why the Holy Ghost would impress or inspire Paul to write these things, right? So what is the Holy Ghost doing when he inspires Paul to write these things, commits it to printed page, and then saves us a copy of the text? He's helping us he's helping us to understand God's plan and purpose for our lives he's helping us to understand what God did for us when Jesus shed his blood on the cross paid the price for sin and death and then was raised again from the dead resurrected from the dead so here's the Holy Ghost helping Paul to provide us with information that will enable us to walk in freedom He's helping us to understand who we are in Christ Jesus so that we can walk in authority, the authority that God intended for us to have and exercise that authority in the earth. The Bible called the Holy Ghost the spirit of truth. Jesus in his prayer with the disciples at the Last Supper before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays that that the disciples and all those that believe on him through their word which is us, would be one with the Father. And then he says this in John 17, 17, he says, Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. Now, the word truth is the same word translated truth in John chapter 14 and 15 where he calls the Holy Ghost the spirit of truth. So if the word is truth and the Holy Ghost is the spirit of truth, then the Holy Ghost has to be the spirit of the word. Can you see that? The Holy Ghost has to be the spirit of the word. So what does the Holy Ghost do when he reveals God's word to us? He's helping us to stand in the place that God always intended for us to have. And according to Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, that's a place of authority in the earth. That's one reason why he'll bring all things to our remembrance whatsoever Jesus said. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. That's the phrase that's not in verse 1. For because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for, or as a substitute for sin, condemns sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That's where that phrase is in the original text. It's in verse 4, not verse 1. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. He's making a case for why we need to renew our minds to the word. So then, verse 8 So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if you're living right and never sin. Is that what makes you in the spirit? Is that what brings us to the place where we're in the spirit, not in the flesh? Let's read it again in verse 9 But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. What's he talking about? He's talking about being born again. He's saying you're not in the flesh if you're born again. Now let's back up again to verse 4 and see how this works. Verse 4, it says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be the spirit of God dwells in you. See, folks, if you're born again, there's no condemnation that can be brought against you. The devil can accuse you. The Bible says the devil is the accuser of the brethren. But there's no condemnation that can ever be laid to your charge. No matter what mistakes you and I make. No matter how we stumble and fall into sin. No matter how many times we stumble and fall into sin. We're not in the flesh, but rather in the spirit. By the Holy Ghost definition, who inspired these things to be written. It's the Holy Ghost definition that we're not in the flesh because he dwells in us. Because he's made us new. He's recreated our human spirit. And lives and dwells within us, within our spirit. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwells in you. Now if any man have not the spirit of Christ... He is none of His. That's how we know this is talking about salvation. It says the Spirit of God dwelling in us that keeps us from being in the flesh is also called the Spirit of Christ. Well, that's the way we talk about Jesus living in your heart, right? How does Jesus live in your heart? By the Holy Ghost. That's why Jesus had to make a specific reference to the twofold working of the Holy Ghost. He'll be in you and He'll dwell with you. We've got a work of the Holy Ghost that takes place in us at at the new birth. We have a work of the Holy Ghost that comes upon us when we're filled or baptized in the Holy Spirit. Jesus told people that were saved, he told the disciples who had been born again, wait in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. And then the Holy Ghost fell on them. And they all began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here's a dual working of the Holy Spirit. He's not twins but there's a dual work one for character and the development of the personality our personalities into the character and the nature and the likeness of God. The Bible tells us to be conformed to the image of Christ. But then there's another work of the Holy Ghost that comes upon us for service. So there's the work of the Spirit of God in us and the work of the Spirit of God with us. So he says you're not in the flesh but in the spirit if The Spirit of God dwells in you, but if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. In other words, he's saying nobody that's without salvation can be part of God's family. Jesus is the only way in. Again, remember in John chapter 20, Jesus breathed on the disciples and said, Receive the Holy Ghost. Well, something changed them. We would certainly expect. If Jesus said to us, receive the Holy Ghost, like he said to them, receive the Holy Ghost, we would certainly expect to get something. Well, that experience transformed the lives of these guys. It says, Luke chapter 24, verse 52, I believe it is, says that from that point they were continually in the temple, worshiping and praising God openly. What gave them boldness? Where they started off hiding behind closed doors for fear of the Jews, they go right to where the Jews are in the temple. And now they're openly worshiping God and praising Him. Something had to happen. Something changed them. The Bible says they were filled with joy. Joy is a part of the, baptism, a part of the salvation experience. It's one of the characteristics of the Spirit of God in us at the new birth. So he says, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if, this word if is the word since, and since Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Ghost. He's talking about the Holy Ghost in us. He's talking about those of us that are born again and the changes that occurred. By the recreated human spirit. If the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. How was Jesus raised from the dead? By the Holy Ghost. The Bible says that Jesus was the firstborn or first begotten from the dead. What does that mean? If he was the first begotten from the dead, what death is it talking about? Was he the first person that was ever raised from physical death? Well, there were people in the Old Testament that were raised from physical death. One story comes to mind when they were burying some Jewish believers, when Jewish individuals were taking out another man, an acquaintance of theirs, to bury. And they saw an enemy scouting party that was close to the place where they were going to bury him so they just without thinking much threw him in a cave or a hole in the ground and it happened to be the place where Elisha was buried and the Bible says that when they tossed this guy's body in and when his body came in contact with the bones of Elisha he revived and came out of the cave Now the picture that I have of this, and I don't know if it's right or not, but the picture I have of this is that they hurriedly throw him into this cave and turn around and start running from the enemy. But this guy is revived, raised from the dead, born again from the dead, if we can call it that or say it that way, come to the mouth of the cave, see the enemy scouting party and see his friends running from them, turns and runs with them. Now when he catches up to them, I just can't help but believe that the other two that threw him into the cave hit the afterburners and left him in the dust. Folks, these things really happened. These are not just fairy tales. These are things that really happened. But back to the point. Was Jesus the first person that was born from physical death? No. Then what does it mean when he says he was the firstborn from the dead? He was the firstborn, the first person that was born again from spiritual death. And the Bible says that took place by the Holy Ghost. He was the spirit that raised Jesus up from the dead. So just as he was the spirit that equipped Jesus to do the healings and the miracles during his earthly ministry, this same Holy Ghost raised Jesus from spiritual death. Now that presupposes, therefore, that Jesus was spiritually dead. If he wasn't spiritually dead, he couldn't be the first begotten from spiritual death. I know that makes some people uncomfortable. But the Bible is very clear on telling us that Jesus paid the price for all of mankind. And the wages of sin, or the price of sin, is death. Not physical death, but spiritual death. So the Holy Ghost was the raiser from the dead he's the one that raised Jesus from spiritual death he's the one that God breathes into us and recreates our human spirit makes us that new creature that Paul talks about he's the one he's the one that changes he's the one that raises us up and he's the one that quickens our moral bodies do you see that? Since the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He quickens your mortal body. The word quicken just simply means to make alive. There is an ongoing work of the Holy Ghost to quicken our mortal bodies. Now, I know what you're thinking. The devil will bring thoughts and questions to us about those things and say, well, then why do Christians die sick? Because they don't know to put a demand on the quickening power of the Holy Ghost. This is one of the things that I'm finding out, folks, and I'm I'm ashamed to say it took me this long to get there. But I always just accepted the fact that the Holy Ghost was in me and would do whatever God wanted him to do. I kind of left it up to being between God and the Holy Spirit as to what happened. But the more that I meditate on these things and the more that I think about the fact that the Holy Ghost, the very power of God himself, the miracle worker, dwells in me i've started putting my faith on the holy ghost doing things and it's remarkable how it begins to happen things that i've never really believed god for before i don't know why i should have everything that we receive from god comes by faith not by just sitting around waiting for something to happen but that's exactly what i did with the holy ghost for a long time too long but praise god that's changing when I see the things that Jesus said the Holy Ghost would do, when I see the things that John was inspired by the Holy Ghost to tell us about the Holy Ghost, and I begin to put a demand on those things. I begin to call for him to show me things to come. I begin to call for him to bring things that Jesus said to my remembrance. He's doing exactly what I'm believing for him to do. It was God's will for him to do this all the time. That he doesn't push God's will on you. He's a perfect gentleman. We have to invite him to do what he's supposed to do. We have to invite him to do in our own lives what God sent him here to the earth to accomplish. And this is all a part of the fact that the Holy Ghost is dwelling in us, the real us, dwelling in our spirits. Our bodies are the temple of God. Because our bodies are the temple of our own spirit and the Holy Ghost, the very presence of God, the very spirit of God himself lives in our own spirits. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. Since the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you and me, he quickens our mortal body. Thank you, Father, for quickening our mortal bodies. You know, one of the things that the Bible says, not as many times as it speaks of healing, certainly, but one of the things that the Bible says in three or four different places is that God renews our strength and renews our youth. God wants you to experience youth even when you're not youthful anymore. He seems to care a lot about that. It's in there enough times for us to recognize it's His will. I've begun placing a demand on the Holy Ghost through the word to renew my youth and I'm seeing things change there too. God always responds to faith and faith is always expressed by word and action. So what you put a demand on, what you see that the Holy Ghost will do for you, God responds to that faith and brings it to pass in you, in your life, in your flesh, whatever it is you're believing for. Well, I'm way over time. I have a greater excitement about the Holy Ghost living in me than I've ever had in my life. And it's fun. I'm having the time of my life, i got to tell you. Why don't we all stand? Let's just lift our hands and thank God for the Holy Ghost, the greater one who dwells within us. Thank you, Father, for the Spirit of God that's in us. Thank you that he's made us new creatures in Christ Jesus, a new creation, a new species of being according to your plan and purpose. We thank you that he brings all things to our remembrance. We thank you that he guides us into all truth or all reality. We thank you that he reminds us of your word, brings scriptures to us in the night. We thank you, Father, that he's the quickening power of the creator of the universe, We thank you, Holy Spirit, for quickening our mortal bodies. We thank you, Father, that you restore us to health and heal our wounds. We thank you, Father, that our skin is fresher than a child's and we return to the days of our youth. Thank you, Father, for having your way in us as we believe and speak with the same spirit of faith as Jesus himself. We also believe, and therefore we speak. We speak healing and health. We speak restoration. We thank you, Father, for restoring the years that the locust has eaten. You lamented in Isaiah's Isaiah's letter to the church. You lamented that no one said restore. We say it. We call for restoration. Not just healing, not for things just to change but for restoration in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for helping us through revelation, through teaching, through the inward witness. Help us to exercise our authority in this earth that we may glorify the Father in your name. We bless you, Father. We thank you for your great plan of redemption. We thank you for sending the Holy Ghost to us In Jesus' precious name. And everybody that agrees with that, say amen. 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 Sorry for going over time, but God bless you. Have a great week.